This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This month, I'll take a look at some cases in which a person who was clearly to blame for the tragic death of another, nevertheless, was not held responsible. You may notice a common factor in each of these stories that may have helped the perpetrator walk free. But I'll leave that clue for you to discover. First up is a bizarre case of a brutal killing, a dismembered body, and even a confession by the guilty party that still somehow ends in an acquittal. But don't worry that I gave away the ending, because this story is so strange, it will still leave you scratching your head. But I swear, it's all true. The wealthy son of a New York real estate family leaves town to avoid investigation in the decades-old disappearance of his wife. A year later, he will be the number one suspect in the murder of an elderly man in Texas. This is the case of Robert Durst and the murder of Morris Black. I'm going to tackle this episode a little differently this time. As you know, I normally have a scripted story that I put together and narrate for you. This time, I'm still going to give you the whole story with all the details, but I'm going to do it a little bit more casually, more in a discussion style. I've done this every now and again, and it seems that listeners tend to enjoy it. So let's give this a shot this time again, and let me know what you think. I have so many details in this case, and I got so interested in all of the things that I uncovered that I didn't know before that I really kind of went down a rabbit hole. I'll try to keep it short still so that you will get the details that maybe you haven't heard before, but not get lost. So here we go. First of all, you may be familiar with the name Robert Durst. His name became known worldwide back in 2015 when an HBO documentary titled The Jinx was aired over six nights. The whole title of the six-part documentary series was The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst. Directed by Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smerling, The Jinx would become one of the most talked about true crime documentaries of the 2000s. It would even go on to win an Emmy for Best Documentary or Nonfiction Series in 2015. But I'm going to tell you first how this documentary came to be. In 2010, a feature film was released titled All Good Things. It starred Ryan Gosling and Kirsten Dunst and was directed by Andrew Jarecki. Marcus Hinchley and Mark Smerling were co-writers of the movie. In the movie, Gosling portrays the wealthy son of a New York real estate tycoon who develops a volatile relationship with his wife, played by Kirsten Dunst. He then becomes suspected of a series of murders, as well as his wife's unsolved disappearance. The director had based this movie on some of the details of the life of Robert Durst. In 1982, Robert Durst had been married to Kathy McCormick Durst for about a decade when she left a party at the home of a friend and disappeared. Durst became a suspect in her disappearance, but was never charged with the crime. In 1999, New York State Police reopened the case. The news of this case being reopened went public the following year. That same year, in the year 2000, Robert Durst fled New York City to escape media attention. A few months later, one of Robert Durst's best friends, a woman named Susan Berman, was found murdered in her home in Los Angeles. 
Before long, Durst would also be named as a person of interest in that case. The movie All Good Things was a fictional portrayal of the marriage of Robert and Kathy Durst and ends in a mystery, just as the real Durst marriage had. So you would think that Robert Durst wouldn't be a fan of this movie, but he was. He decided to contact the director, Andrew Drecki, to tell him just that, and also to pitch a documentary about his life that he wanted him to direct. Durst said about this documentary, I'll be able to tell it my way. Jarecki agreed to make the documentary, and this is what became the six-part HBO documentary series, The Jinx. In February 8th of 2015, The Jinx premiered. The episodes were filled with candid interviews by Robert Durst with the director. In these, he admitted to several things that were a little bit eye-opening. He admitted to violence during his marriage to Kathy, and he also admitted that he lied to police in 1982 after Kathy's disappearance. This, as you can imagine, made people kind of start to wonder about Robert Durst, who he was, and how he felt that he could get away with saying these things to the world. So let's go back to the beginning now and find out exactly who Robert Durst is. Robert Allen Durst, who would be called Bob or Bobby by his friends and family, was born on April 12, 1943 in New York City. His parents were Seymour and Bernice Durst. Seymour Durst was a real estate investor. Robert Durst was the oldest of four children. His siblings were Douglas, Tommy, and Wendy. Durst's grandfather Joseph was a self-made man. Arriving to the United States from Austria in 1902, virtually penniless, but becoming a financial success. Joseph Durst first worked as a tailor's apprentice and also sold children's clothes from a pushcart to make a living. He then opened a garment factory with a partner. In 1915, this partner bought him out, and Joseph used the proceeds from this to buy his first property in Manhattan. After that, he began investing in real estate throughout the city. He also got into banking, forming Capital National Bank, in which he made loans to garment district businesses. He built up the Durst Organization as a family-run commercial and residential real estate company. Seymour Durst, Robert's father, and Joseph's other sons entered the business in the 1940s. They began developing properties in the growing city of New York. The Durst Organization now owns and manages more than 8.5 million square feet of office space in Manhattan and over 1 million square feet of luxury residential rentals. The Durst actually changed Manhattan's skyline with their building development projects. That's how prominent they are as developers in the city of New York. Their business empire is worth $5.2 billion today. And Forbes ranks the Durst as number 59 on the list of richest families in America. On November 8, 1950, when Robert was seven years old, his mother would die from jumping from the steep roof of their two-story home in Scarsdale, New York. At first, it was reported as an accident, but a police officer on the scene was later found and interviewed, and this is what he said about the incident. Quote, she told us to take off, that she was going to jump. We asked her not to jump, and she did it anyway. He told this to writer Robert Draper. At the time she jumped, her children were inside the house, and Robert Durst would say that he witnessed his mother kill herself by jumping from the roof. Robert did have some emotional issues as a child, and in 1953, at age 10, there was a report by a psychiatrist in which the doctor said that Robert exhibited a personality decomposition and possibly even schizophrenia. Family members also remember Robert having emotional issues. His cousin Nan Rothschild would say, I just remember Bobby as a very difficult child. 
He was the only one who was really difficult when we had family gatherings. Robert would attend Scarsdale High School, a public high school in Scarsdale, New York. Later, classmates who were asked about Robert Durst would say they had no recall of him, even though they had spent 12 years together in the same class. In 1965, Durst attended Lehigh University. He received a bachelor's degree in economics from that school. He then traveled to Los Angeles, where he enrolled in the University of California at Los Angeles, but dropped out in 1969. However, he would later claim that he had received a master's in economics from this school. He began working as a real estate developer along with his family in the Durst organization in 1973. He, at that time, was given the responsibility for collecting rents from tenants. In 1971, Durst would meet Kathy McCormick. He was the building supervisor where she lived at the time. Kathy McCormick was born June 15, 1952. Her mother was Anne McCormick, and she had a brother, Joseph, and a sister, Mary. Upon meeting Kathy McCormick, Bobby Durst turned up his considerable charm and squired her around town. Kathy came from a working-class family, and Robert, as a millionaire, was able to shower her with the best of everything. She was soon swept off her feet. In 1973, Bobby Durst and Kathy were married. At the time, he was 30 years old and she just 20. Bobby said he was never one who really wanted the corporate lifestyle. And he would quit his family's real estate business after he and Kathy got married. They would then move to Vermont where they opened up a health food store. But there were problems in the relationship. In 1980, the couple separated, but they did not divorce at that time. Some recall witnessing more frequent arguments and said that Robert Durst was very controlling over his wife. These arguments sometimes led to physical violence, according to reports. Kathy Durst had been seen at a hospital at least once with bruises she said had been inflicted by her husband. Her brother would report later that he saw his brother-in-law pull his sister Kathy up by her hair when she refused to leave a party with him. It was also rumored that Robert was the one who would not agree to a divorce when Kathy wanted out of the marriage. Kathy also became pregnant during the marriage, and it was reported that Durst had coerced her into getting an abortion, which she did not want. Things began to deteriorate in the marriage even further. Not long before her disappearance, several of Kathy's friends said she told them that if anything happened to her, quote, don't let Bobby get away with it. On January 31st, 1982, Kathy Durst attended a party at her friend's home. She got a call from Robert and left the party soon after. But here's where people began to get suspicious. Kathy was not heard from for several days. People had begun calling Robert to try to reach Kathy, but he was not answering his phone. Finally, five days later, Robert Durst reported his wife missing. According to Durst's report to police, they had gotten into an argument at their home in South Salem on that night of January 31st. He said he then drove Kathy to the Katona train station so that she could head back to Manhattan. Kathy was in medical school and was in her last year of studies to become a pediatrician. She was taking classes at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York City and was staying during the week when she had classes at the Riverside Drive apartment. This is where Robert Durst said that Kathy was headed that night when she got on the train. He also said that they spoke on the phone shortly afterward, but that this was the last time he had heard from her. A doorman of the apartment building said that he saw Kathy enter the building and head up to the Durst penthouse, but upon questioning, he later say that he only saw Kathy from behind. The day after Kathy was last seen, the dean of the Albert Einstein College of Medicine received a phone call that he reported was from Kathy. She stated that she was not feeling well and wouldn't be coming into class that day. 
That was the last anyone heard from her. Suspicion began to swirl around Robert Durst. He began to act very strange during this time. First of all, he would not cooperate with the investigation. He basically stonewalled everyone or just couldn't be contacted. Then he began throwing out all of her possessions. Neighbors in their apartment building in New York said that he threw so many of Kathy's clothes and other possessions down the common garbage chute in the building that it clogged it up. Her friends and family all suspected him of having something to do with her disappearance and with many believing that he had murdered her. He spent the next several years living in different parts of the country, just moving around from place to place. During this time, when police and media were trying to contact Robert Durst, a woman named Susan Berman became his unofficial spokesperson regarding Kathy's disappearance, and any questions that were directed to him were answered by her. Susan Berman was Durst's longtime friend, and she was the only person that the media and even his family and friends were able to talk to during this time. She also had provided an alibi for Robert Durst for the night in question. Durst would later accuse his wife of running away with a drug dealer. And like I said, he was very nonchalant about her disappearance, according to all her friends. The whereabouts of Kathy Durst remained a mystery. And eight years later, in 1990, Robert Durst filed for divorce from Kathy, claiming spousal abandonment. So let me tell you a little bit about who Susan Berman was because she is going to play a very important role in this story. And she also has a very interesting backstory. Susan Berman was born May 18, 1945 in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Her father was David Davy Berman, who was connected to organized crime. He worked on behalf of Meyer Lansky and the Genovese crime family. She was raised in Minneapolis and Las Vegas. Davy Berman actually replaced Bugsy Siegel as operator of the Flamingo Hotel and Casino by the mob after Bugsy Siegel was murdered in a mob-style execution in 1947. Susan was attending classes at UCLA, and this is where she first met Robert Durst. She would go on to receive a master's in journalism from UC Berkeley and become a writer. After her father's death, she received over $4 million from the mob as a disbursement of her father's real estate holdings and other assets. He had died when Susan was still a child during heart surgery. Her mother died by suicide the following year. But Susan always suspected that the death of both of her parents were hits by the mob. She worked as a journalist and an author and wrote a memoir called Easy Street, where she told of her life as a mobster's daughter. She also lived in San Francisco for a time, writing for the San Francisco Examiner and other publications. She was also a writer on television shows, and leading up to the time of her death, she was working on a project for Showtime. Susan Berman and Robert Durst were very close friends. Durst actually walked Berman down the aisle when she got married in 1984 to her husband, Christopher Margulis. Her husband would die of a heroin overdose just two years later. She was a confidant of Robert Durst and was very loyal to him. There were rumors that she had helped him somehow with Kathy's disappearance. And one of the things that people pointed to was the alibi that she provided. She was the only person who provided an alibi for him that night. By the late 1980s, Robert Durst's family said that his behavior had become increasingly erratic. He was still collecting rent for the Durst organization, but now he was funneling that money over to a friend of his, a woman named Debbie Charitan. 
his brother Douglas found out about it and put a stop to it. And then tension between the brothers began to grow even more. By 1992, Douglas Durst was officially named the Durst Organization President, a title that should have belonged to Robert as the oldest son, but instead he was given the title of Chairman. Robert Durst ended up leaving the organization, and after about 1994, he never returned to the office. He, as a matter of fact, did not even attend his own father's funeral a year later in 1995. Kathy Durst's family had long suspected that it was the money that the Durst family was in possession of that made the police basically not pay much attention to her disappearance. And her family was continuing to try to get the police to investigate her disappearance. Finally, in 1999, the New York State Police did reopen the case. It was still ruled as a missing persons case. Remember, she went missing in 1982. In 1999, when they, the investigation opened up again, the police actually searched Robert Durst's South Salem home for the very first time. But then there was a leak. Somebody in the DA's office leaked that the investigation into Kathy Durst's disappearance so many years ago was being reinvestigated and that they were looking at Robert Durst as a possible suspect. This investigation that really kind of went public in November of 2000 was being led by Westchester County DA Janine Pirro. And the reason that this happened was it was based on a tip. I won't go into those details because we're not focusing on this case so much, but just kind of laying the background. But at the time, Pirro was doing press conferences and being quoted in newspapers. She was being interviewed by reporters. Pirro was a very ambitious person and wanted to seek public office. So this was a way to get her name out there. And also, I do believe that she really did want to solve this case. Believing that foul play had come to Kathy Durst, nothing had been heard from Kathy Durst. There was no sightings at all. There was no financial records. There was nothing. So that is really kind of unbelievable. If somebody runs away, there's going to be some evidence that they're still around after so many years, but there was nothing. One of the comments that Pirro made to the press was, quote, I have no reason to believe that she, speaking of course of Kathy Durst, isn't dead and that this wasn't a homicide. So they were putting that right out there. Now, around this time, in November of 2000, Pirro was seeking out anyone who either the police had spoken to back in 1982 or perhaps failed to speak to or interview back at that time. So again, it was reinvestigation of the case. So they were going through all of these checklists to see if they could come up with any other information. So someone in Piro's office, perhaps Piro herself, there's different um, reports of that, had scheduled an interview with Susan Berman. The interview, of course, was to question her about the things that she knew back from 1982, the things that she had told the police or the press back in 1982 about Kathy's disappearance. Around the same time, Robert Durst flees New York, and he will say that this is because he wanted to escape media attention. He had been kind of hopping around a lot around the country before that, but was back in New York when all of these things started to hit the newspapers. He took off once again. 
The next event to take place in the story is in December of 2000, right around Christmas time. Susan Berman had been living in a home in Los Angeles's Benedict Canyon. She had not been heard from for a couple of days. On Christmas Eve of 2000, one of Susan Berman's neighbors called to report that Susan's two dogs were running loose in the back of the house and that her back door was wide open. When it was checked out, Susan Berman was found dead on her living room floor, shot in the back of the head. She had been killed, according to the medical examiner, about a day earlier than she was found. This was just weeks after she'd been contacted by investigators to be questioned about Kathy's disappearance. Then, another strange twist to the story, a few days later, the Beverly Hills Police Department received a letter with no return address. There was just a single sheet of paper inside, and on it was written in block letters Susan Berman's address, and underneath that, the word cadaver. It had been postmarked the day before her body was discovered. So obviously somebody who knew that she was dead in her home had sent this letter to the police to let them know, I guess, to check this out. Nobody came forward. The letter was anonymous. So all of these things, of course, could seem like just really strange coincidences in the life of Robert Durst. But of course, with all of these things put together, we start to think something is going on here around this man. And the next part of this case is the part that I will be focusing on. And this is Robert Durst, again, has moved to another part of the country, this time to Galveston, Texas. And he will behave very strangely indeed at this time. And I'll go into those details as soon as we take a short break. Before Susan Berman was found dead, shot execution style in her home in Los Angeles, Robert Durst was in the wind, crisscrossing around the country, no longer tethered to his family's business, but with plenty of money at his disposal. In the fall of 2000, he arrived in the Gulf City of Galveston, Texas. There, the multimillionaire rented a cheap apartment in an old house that had been cut into four apartments, paying just $300 a month. But how he rented this apartment was the most bizarre part so far. Robert Durst, wanting to remain incognito, called up the apartment's landlord, said he was reaching out on his friend's behalf. He said the woman was unable to hear or speak. He said the woman also did not know how to use sign language, but only communicated through writing notes. So he was calling to secure this apartment for her. When this woman, Dorothy Siner, arrived to begin renting this apartment in Galveston, Texas, she cut a very strange figure. She wore large, oversized, flowery dresses and a very obvious cheap gray wig. This is how Robert Durst arrived in Galveston, pretending to be a deaf-mute woman. Now, you would imagine somebody like Robert Durst, who has access to millions upon millions of dollars, may rent a four-star hotel under assumed name, may be able to go and purchase fake ID, go to another country if he really wanted to get lost and he really wanted to not be recognized. But one thing you need to know about Robert Durst, by all accounts, he was extremely cheap. He didn't like to spend any money. He didn't absolutely have to, although at other times he could be quite generous. But when it came to his own necessities, he would rather not pay any more than he had to. Another turn of events at this time that was on December 11th, just after moving to Galveston, Texas, 
Robert Durr secretly married Deborah Sheraton, who, like I said, was a friend of his. I believe she was also like a business partner. She was a New York State real estate broker. They had dated off and on for about a decade. Now he secretly married her. Nobody knew about this for some time. So now we've gotten to the part of this case that I want to focus on in this episode. On Sunday, September 30th, 2001, a 13-year-old boy named James Avina was fishing in the Galveston Bay. He was standing near the edge of the rocks when he noticed something floating in the water. He saw four silver garbage bags floating near a concrete pier, and there was something next to it that he thought was a dead pig, and he wondered what was that doing in the water. As he looked closer, he noticed that it was not a pig. It was about dusk on the Sunday evening, and James was there with his little sister Elise and his stepfather David. He called out to his stepfather, saying, hey, there's a body over here. What James had spied in the water was a human torso bumping repeatedly against the rocks near the shore. The police were called and the grisly discovery was reported. When they arrived, they found a torso, no head and no limbs attached to it. They looked nearby where the torso was found floating. They also saw the garbage bags. They pulled those out of the water. When they looked inside, they found that they contained human limbs and other evidence. The legs were found in separate garbage bags, and the arms of the body were found in another. Sergeant Cody Cazales, a Galveston police detective, was assigned as lead investigator of this case. He would later say that the body parts had been found because the killer had dumped them while the tide was coming in, and he said this about that. Quote, that's how we knew we probably weren't looking for someone local because a person who was local to the bay would know that if you dump something in the bay as the tide was coming in, it's just going to float to the shore. He also said that the person who dumped the body parts in the bay was not very smart because they put them in trash bags that would float. He said it would have been much smarter to just dump the body parts right into the water where they would quickly be eaten by animals and just be made to disappear. Besides the body parts found inside the garbage bags, they also found a treasure trove of evidence. Found wrapped around one of the legs was a newspaper and affixed to it was an address label that read 2213 Avenue K, which was a local address. Also found in the bags was a receipt from a hardware store for trash bags and a drop cloth, a price tag for a paring knife, and a package for a new bow saw that were both dated on September 28th just two days before the body parts were found. What they didn't find among the bags was the head of the body. That was still missing. The detective next traveled to 2213 Avenue K, the address found on the newspaper. And the details of what he found came from the book titled A Deadly Secret, The Bizarre and Chilling Story of Robert Durst, written by Matt Burbeck. 2213 Avenue K was a brown house which resembled a two-story Cape Cod with a front porch and was located in the middle of a nondescript block. Cazales arrived with another officer and looked around the front of the house and then walked to the back. They peeked inside a trash can and found two trash bags that were similar to the ones that had been floating in the bay. They also found packaging for a number four paring knife, a bloody sock, a band-aid, a Bank of America cash envelope, a 22 caliber handgun, a spent 22 shell casing, and a receipt for an eye exam made out to someone named Robert Durst. Cazales then contacted the landlord of the house, a man named Klaus René Dillman. He told him that he didn't know anybody named Robert Durst, 
There were four apartments in the house, and the one in the front had been rented by a 70-something-year-old man named Morris Black and a woman named Dorothy Siner, a deaf mute who traveled often and was rarely seen. Siner, the landlord said, was a, quote, bizarre-looking, flat-chested woman who communicated by scribbling notes. She paid her rent months in advance, always in cash or money order. Now the detective went outside and looked through a front window into Siner's apartment. There he saw a drop cloth spread out on the floor. At that point, Cazales decided to obtain a warrant to search Morris Black's apartment, the older man who lived in apartment 1A. When they entered, the place was empty. Everything in the apartment was gone, including Black's clothes. The detective saw evidence that someone had mopped the kitchen floor in a hurry in an attempt to clean the apartment. The police brought in luminol and sprayed it throughout the apartment, finding a glowing bloody trail that led from the kitchen, kitchen sink, bathroom floor, sink, and shower to the carpet in the front room. They also found blood in the hallway separating Black's apartments from Dorothy Siner's. He obtained another search warrant, and the next day, on October 4th, he found Siner's place just as blood-soaked as the one across the hall. Inside, he found bloody boots, blood on the carpet, on the kitchen floor, and even on the kitchen walls. There was blood underneath the floor in the kitchen, which had seeped through a small cut in the linoleum. Police also found a bloody paring knife and a drop cloth that had been spread out in the living room. A photo of a man was found inside Siner's apartment and shown to the two neighbors who lived upstairs. They identified the man they knew as Robert Durst. Again, Dillman the landlord said he didn't know a Robert Durst. All he knew was that he had rented an apartment nearly a year before to Dorothy Siner. They now interviewed other tenants and people in the neighborhood who said that Durst had spent a lot of time in his apartment engaging in loud arguments with Morris Black. This happened almost on a daily basis, and most of the time it ended with each of the two men slamming their doors. But neither Dorothy Siner nor Robert Durst was anywhere around. So the investigation continues. The day after the apartments were searched and the evidence was collected, the victim whose dismembered body had been found floating in garbage bags in the bay was identified as 71-year-old Morris Black. Before we get to the rest of the investigation, I'm going to tell you who Morris Black was. Morris Julius Black was born October 21, 1929, to Fanny and Samuel Black, who were Russian immigrants and lived in the Boston, Massachusetts area. It was reported that his parents had suffered from some type of mental illness or mental problems, forcing them to place their six children, including Morris, in foster homes. One of his brothers was also later placed in a mental institution in Boston. Some of the children, including Morris, eventually returned home, but their lives did not improve. The children were abused. Some family members would later say that Samuel Black sexually abused his children, And there was also reports that Morris may have participated in this abuse. The result of that was that some of his siblings hadn't spoken to Morris in decades. Morris Black left home for the Merchant Marines when he was just 18 years old. He didn't return until the early 1950s, but then he kind of dropped out of sight until about 1972. At that time, he bought a building that was located near the Boston Harbor with a woman named Lorraine Black, who none of his family members knew, but was most likely his wife. They had no children that anyone knew about, and no one really knew what became of his wife. She just kind of dropped out of sight as well. In 1980, Morris Black bought another building in the Boston area for $6,500. This was after losing the first building that he had purchased to a bank foreclosure. 
The second building was a somewhat dilapidated three-story tenement building located at 10 Hannon Street. People who lived in that building at the time described Morris Black as the landlord from hell. This is also from Birkbeck's book. Quote, he refused to pay for any repairs, opting to do them all himself to save money. He once sued the TV cable company because a technician put a small hole in the wall while wiring an apartment. He personally picked up the rent every month, money orders are cash only, and spent his time limping along the streets wearing a red knit hat even during the summer. The limp was a result of an injury suffered when he was a child. Morris had no phone, no car, and never any visitors, said his tenants. He was testy, mean, nasty, and difficult, and he was a man who would argue with anyone and everyone. He often expressed a profound hatred for women. He is almost always described as, quote, a grumpy old man, and sometimes worse than that. Morris Black arrived in Galveston, Texas in 1998, so not too long before Robert Durst. Here's some strange details, though. So here's this grumpy old man who everybody says is extremely cheap, angry at everybody for every little thing, is always yelling and complaining about something. And yet, when he was in Galveston, he was known to spend his time at a shelter that helped people in the Galveston area, the poor, people without homes, and the down and out. Morris Black also was described as uh, walking around a stooped little old man wearing a fishing hat. And this was something that was so distinctive to him that people began to, behind his back, of course, call him Gilligan. So like from Gilligan's Island, that kind of hat. If you guys remember that old show. He started hanging out and being known by the volunteers at an organization called the Jesse Tree. And they would call him that crazy old man with a fishing hat. In January of 2001, he started showing up there unannounced. And he kept badgering one of the volunteer coordinators that they needed to buy reading glasses or some kind of eyeglasses for the people who would come to get services at Jesse Tree. This was something that they just didn't have the money for. And this was, this was explained to him, but he would just get angry and then he'd stomp off. And then he'd come back the next day and he'd start again badgering them to buy these people glasses. They needed these eyeglasses. And again, they tell him, that's great, but we can't really afford it. And he'd stomp off and get angry again. Finally, he decided he was going to buy them himself. He ordered the glasses himself and decided that he was going to give these away every Saturday morning in downtown Galveston, where the Jesse Trees served free breakfast and offered free medical services to folks in that area. Every Saturday, Morris Black would arrive with a shopping bag in each hand filled with dozens of pairs of glasses he had bought in bulk. He told the volunteers that he figured it cost him 46 cents a pair, which he thought was a bargain. He liked to point out that if these were bought at a drugstore, it would have cost at least $12 per pair. He would stand out there where people were in line to get food or other services, and he would question them and see if they needed glasses, and he'd hand them a pair of these reading glasses. They thought, well, this is great. This is a really nice thing to do. But sometimes he would get really angry when he felt someone was taking advantage of his generosity. Quote, he would then take the glasses back, often in a loud and embarrassing fashion. One poor fellow had the misfortune of carrying a pack of cigarettes in his shirt pocket. Mora saw the cigarettes after giving the fellow a pair of glasses. He reached over and angrily took the glasses out of his hand, screaming, if you can afford to buy cigarettes, then you can afford to buy these glasses. <laughs> Another time, he thought someone had stolen a pair of glasses from one of his bags, and he began to yell and berate those standing in line. I mean, you could just kind of see him as this Little old man jumping up and, and waving his arms around and just being just a total crank. And then it turns out that 
a little boy tapped him on the shoulder and said, Mr., you dropped a pair of glasses back there in the parking lot and handed it to him. (laughs) So instead of apologizing, he just grabbed the glasses and stomped off. The other thing he would say is that if you were lazy, he wasn't going to give you any glasses. And the volunteer coordinator would ask him, well, how do you know they're lazy? He said, believe me, I know. I know these people. I can tell who's lazy. (laughs) He was quite a character. He also grated on people's nerves because he was just kind of a pill. Like I said, Morris Black lives across the hall from Dorothy Siner, who now we know is Robert Durst. Okay, so let's go back to the investigation here. They basically find a bloodbath in um, these apartments. So obviously, the Morris Black has been killed here in this apartment building. And who else is missing is Dorothy Siner, a.k.a. Robert Durst. So now they're going to start looking for Robert Durst. One of the things that they noted in both apartments There had really been an attempt made to clean the floors, the walls, to clean all the surfaces in the apartment. You know, remember, the blood that was found was found by luminol. So it wasn't necessarily like they walked in and there was evidence of like all this blood. But once they sprayed the luminol, they could see it. And then they found some spots here and there, were able to find out exactly where all the blood had been before it was attempted to be cleaned up. Everything, walls, cabinets, everything had been scrubbed clean. They didn't even find fingerprints for Morris Black in his own apartment, nor did they find fingerprints for Robert Durst in apartment two, where he lived. So obviously there had been a cleanup in both places. Detective Gonzalez just kept following up on these clues that were found along with the body. So like I told you, one of the things they found was a 22 caliber pistol and two clips of ammunition in the trash can in the alley behind the apartment building They followed up on that gun, and they found that it was registered to Robert Durst. They also found a box that had held trash bags, packaging for a four-inch paring knife, a bloody sock, and an eviction notice for Morris Black in apartment 1A. The landlord had said that he had served an eviction notice for Morris Black because he was just tired of this guy. He just was always complaining, always starting some kind of drama, and he was just done with him. The other thing found in the trash was a receipt for a local optometrist with Robert Durst's name on it. Gonzalez then followed up on that clue and called the optometrist office, which was located in downtown Galveston, and was told, yes, Robert Durst was a customer of the, uh, that office and had put a deposit down on some eyeglasses. So the detective said when he comes back, or if he comes back, to pick up these glasses, please call me. You would think at this point, here's somebody who... It appears was involved in some kind of gruesome murder and would probably just be gone, right? But remember, I told you, Durst was a very, very cheap multimillionaire. (laughs) So he had put down 50 bucks, so he wasn't going to leave his glasses there. He'd already made a deposit. So he did show up to pick up his glasses. The optometrist called, and when police arrived, Robert Durst was just pulling away from the optometrist office and got pulled over by the police. When they pulled him over, the detective saw in plain view in his rearview mirror a bow saw. So all of these things, obviously, we're not talking about a criminal mastermind here. At least it doesn't appear to be. So this is October 9th, 2001. Robert Durst is now 58 years old. He is arrested in Galveston, Texas. As he sat in jail, another search warrant was obtained and police then combed through the car that he was driving, a Honda CRV that was registered to Robert Durst. Inside, they found a 9mm handgun, three joints of marijuana, another bow saw, a key to a Galveston Holiday Inn Express, 
and a receipt for a dry cleaner in New Orleans. Durst was then brought before the judge and charged with murder in the second degree of Morris Black and possession of narcotics. At his hearing, his bail was set for $250,000 plus an additional $50,000 slapped on for the drug possession charge, so a total of $300,000. But Bobby Durst made one phone call that night to New York. By the next day, the bond was posted and he was free to go, which of course would be a mistake, but the Galveston police didn't know who he was at this time. He was set to return to court for a hearing on October 16th, a court hearing which he did not show up to. A grand jury then indicted him on murder and jumping bail, and a warrant was issued for his arrest. Robert Durst had jumped bail after he was arrested for the murder of Morris Black. After that time, he rented a car at a Rent-A-Wreck, which is a rental car agency that literally does that, rents <laughs> these cars that are in less stellar condition, but they can be rented cheaply. Again, multimillionaire wants a cheap car instead of going and renting a nice Cadillac or something. He rented the Rent-A-Wreck in Mobile, Alabama on October 17th, using Morris Black's name, but paying in cash. He then drove east to Baltimore, then up to Atlantic City, New Jersey, before finally stopping in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Now, he knew the Lehigh Valley here in uh, Pennsylvania because this is where he had gone to college at Lehigh University back in the day. Where we next pick up the story here with Robert Durst is another strange scene. When police are called to a Wegman supermarket on a shoplifting call. And again, this is from Matt Burbeck's book, A Deadly Secret. A security camera hanging on a ceiling inside the Wegman supermarket was pointed at the strange little bald man who had taken a Band-Aid from a box and placed it over his upper lip. The man looked over his shoulder, then down the aisle. Again, they're they're watching him on cameras here, of course. Convinced that no one was watching, he took a few more Band-Aids, slipped them into his coat pocket, and moved on. Another camera in the large upscale supermarket near Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, followed the man as he walked to the front of the store, looked at a cart filled with sandwiches, reached down and took one, placing it inside his jacket. So a security guard now follows him, stops him, and brings them to the second floor security office. A police officer is called to the supermarket, and this, if I didn't say, is on Friday, November 30th. So he has been on the run for about seven weeks since leaving Galveston and jumping bail. The Wegman security guard questioned the man who said his name was Robert Durst. But when the officer arrived, he was a little put off by the shoplifter's appearance. The man's head was shaved, as were his eyebrows. He looked to be about in his 50s. They continued questioning him, and he replied that he hadn't stolen anything in more than 10 years. Quote, I'm just an asshole for doing this, he said, shaking his head. He was then asked if he had a shoplifting problem. Yeah, I did, until about 10 years ago, he said. I've always had problems stealing. I once saw a psychiatrist for help. I thought I beat it. I don't know what made me do it. They then told him that they were going to charge him with shoplifting, and he was pretty surprised that he was going to be arrested. As he was sitting with the handcuffs behind his back, he started mumbling to himself, and then he started yelling out loud, quote, I can't believe this. I'm 58 years old, and I get caught for theft. What an asshole. What an asshole. He was kind of just flipping out at this point. The officer then tried to calm him down, saying that because he didn't live in the state, he was going to be brought in front of a magistrate and probably pay a fine about $300 plus court costs. 
He then asked what happens after that. He seemed a little relieved, the officer said, and Durst told him that he had $500 in his pocket. Which, okay, obviously you have a theft problem when you have $500 in your pocket and you shoplift a $5 chicken sandwich and a few loose band-aids. So the officer later would say that he probably would have just written the man up and taken him immediately to the district justice for him to pay the fine and then release him. But the man continued to rant about his shoplifting problems. And then he realized there was something really off with this guy. And he thought, I need to find out what's going on with this guy. So the officer called into dispatch, gave the information that the man had given him, his name, where he was from. Within just a few seconds, the dispatch called him back. He turned around and he said to Robert Durst, so when's the last time you were in Texas? This is when Durst froze and then wouldn't say anything more. He was taken to the police department and placed inside a secure room. So the officer then called a detective at the department who in turn called the FBI. And this is when they realized that they had just apprehended a man who was wanted for murder. His car was towed to the police yard and searched. Inside, they found $37,000 in cash and $100 bills in envelopes in his trunk. They also found two guns, Morris Black's driver's license and Medicare card, and some marijuana. He now would be facing up to 99 years in prison. We're going to move ahead now. Robert Durst will now go on trial for the murder of Morris Black. The trial began in 2003, and District Attorney Kurt Sistrunk was arguing the prosecution's case. The prosecution portrayed Durst as a methodical, cold-blooded killer. He explained to the jury that the man chopped up a body over two days on his kitchen floor before disposing of the body parts in the bay. He also showed evidence of planning um, of the cover-up of the crime, saying that Durst had sent money orders to pay Morris Black's rent for the next month so as not to call attention to the man's absence. Then he posted bond and fled, which in his mind was evidence of guilt. The prosecutor's theory was that Morris Black may have found out who Durst was and that he was being investigated for the disappearance of his wife. And also now, of course, there was questions about the murder of Susan Berman, his good friend, and whether or not he was involved in that as well. Now, Durst's attorney, and I'll tell you about him in a minute, was able to successfully argue to the court that Kathy Durst's disappearance in 1982 nor Susan Berman's murder in 2001 could be mentioned in this trial. So the judge agreed to that stipulation. So the jury was not going to hear anything about either one of those cases. This was solely about the murder of Morris Black. So what the district attorney did bring in to show that this defendant was a cold-blooded killer was evidence of a methodical killing. The testimony by the medical examiner who performed the autopsy said that the person who had dismembered Black, quote, knew what they were doing, that the body had been taken apart using smooth cuts with a sharp object. The bones appeared to be sawed, not hacked off inexpertly with something like an axe. And the head, which had still not been found, had been cleanly severed at the sixth vertebra. Now remember, Durst has basically unlimited funds to hire the best legal defense. So his defense attorney is Richard DeGuerin and Mike Ramsey, along with a couple of others. Now, DeGuerin was a well-known criminal defense attorney, had defended David Koresh and also Thomas DeLay in the Enron scandal, among other high-profile cases. 
So this is a top defense attorney here that he has paid for. As a matter of fact, it would turn out that even before the trial began, Durst had already paid his defense attorney, DeGarren, $1.8 million to defend him. The prosecution basically believed that this was a slam dunk case. There was tons of evidence, blood evidence, lots of identifying things that tied the dismembered body back to Robert Durst. So they didn't think that they were going to have much of a difficult time of it. But that was not going to be the case. The defense, for their part, what they did, first of all, was to come into court and say that Robert Durst admitted to killing and dismembering Morris Black. But they were going to prove that it was in self-defense. DeGarren, in his opening statement, said, quote, Morris Black died as a result of a life-and-death violence struggle over a gun that Black had threatened Bob Durst with. As they struggled, the gun went off and shot Morris Black in the face. So he's going to say it was an accidental shooting born out of a struggle where Robert Durst was fighting for his own life. They were also going to bring in a psychological defense to explain why then, if this was just an accidental shooting, did he feel the need to dismember the body and dispose of it in such a gruesome way. They would say that Durst became traumatized and was, quote, thrown into a state similar to an out-of-body experience caused by a previously undiagnosed psychological disorder. So this is how they explained it. Quote, his friend is dead, lying on the floor in a $300 apartment rented by a billionaire in Galveston, Texas, who is dressed as a woman. How much stranger does it get than that? And who will believe him? They brought in details of Robert Durst's life to make him sympathetic to the jury. They said that his mother killed herself in front of her children. This was something that Robert Durst had witnessed at the young age of seven or eight years old. They also tried to portray him sympathetic as this loyal son who was trying to do his duty to his family, but never wanted to be part of corporate America, didn't care about money. He wanted to live a simple life in Vermont as a health food store owner, but He came back to be an obedient son when his family called him back to New York to work in the family business, you know, trying to make him look like this good guy. The defense also claimed that Durst's, quote, bizarre and strange behavior was a symptom of Asperger's syndrome. They said that they would prove that he, quote, suffered from Asperger's. This is the defense's claim, quote, it means he is susceptible to a kind of panic state That trauma in of itself brings on a panic state in that kind of personality. It's the kind of personality that runs from trouble rather than trying to solve problems, end quote. Now, although they said they were going to prove that he suffered from this and that this was the result of it, that he panicked and did this horrible thing by cutting up the body and trying to hide it, they nevertheless did not call a doctor or expert into the trial to prove that he had anything like Asperger's or was on the spectrum. The biggest part of this trial was a surprise to most people who were following this case, and that was that Durst himself got on the stand to tell his own side of the story. He was on the stand for several days, and this was his story about what took place in late September of 2001. He said on that evening, he returned home to find Morris Black sitting in his apartment. He had not been invited in, but Durst had given him a key for emergency purposes. He said that when he entered his apartment, Black was sitting in the chair and he looked angry. But Durst really didn't explain why he was angry. He just said he was angry. Durst said he feared that Black had found the gun that he kept hidden in his oven. 
Durst said when he questioned Black about the gun, Black stood up and pointed the gun at him. Durst claimed he then grabbed for the barrel, and together they both ended up tripping and falling to the ground. As they fell, according to Durst, the gun went off. But he would say in his testimony that he does not remember touching the trigger. He does not think he ever touched the trigger. It just went off. After he heard the gun go off, Durst said, quote, I pushed myself up on my left hand and saw blood on the side of Morris's nose. Now, this is important because this is something that the jury will later say that because he had the specific detail about that the blood was on his nose, that they felt like it was too detailed to be a lie. Then Durst said, Morris is laying on the ground. He sees blood pooling around his head. He freaks out. He claims then to have run to two separate neighbors' homes, uh, one, I think, in the apartment building and one next door, bangs on the door to yell for help for somebody to call 911, but alas, no one was home. So nobody answered the door or, you know, he got no help. So he returned to the apartment and in this fog, he starts cleaning up the blood that's around Morris Black's head. When he's asked to explain why he didn't call police and just claim self-defense, if that was what happened, he said that his friend Morris was shot in the face with his gun and in his apartment. And he reminded the jury that he had rented this apartment under an alias and disguised as a woman. When the police came to respond to this emergency, they would discover who he was. And who he was was a wealthy man that media attention, this is his words, media attention had been dredged up again after many, many years about the disappearance of his wife, Kathy, back in the 1980s. And they would discover who he was, that he had rented an apartment under an alias and disguised as a woman. The police wouldn't believe him. He would be booked. Now the defense is going to bring in the kind of pressure he was under, why he had fled New York City. So now they're going to bring in the whole thing about his missing wife, even though this was something that they fought to keep out of the trial. But they were going to bring it in now to use for their own purpose. So what they did was they said, you know, here's this poor guy, was in love with his wife. She goes missing in the 1980s. And then it would imply that she ran off. And now years later, in the late 1990s, the Westchester County DA Janine Pirro was so politically motivated to make a name for herself in order to run for a higher office that she now was going after Robert Durst and falsely accusing him of killing his wife, his long ago disappeared wife. They brought in the interviews that she did on television and all the headlines that were in the New York newspapers at that time. Durst said that he consulted with an attorney for the Durst organization and asked him, you know, what does all this mean? What can I do? You know, I'm getting all this pressure from this DA. And the attorney had told him that with no evidence that Janine Pirro, the DA, can have you indicted and thrown in jail with a million dollar bond placed on you. And that's when he got scared and left New York. Now here he is in hiding in another state. And now he's got this dead person in his house as a result of an accidental shooting. According to his story, he panicked. He needed to get rid of this body. He said he first thought of rolling the body up in something and carrying it out of the building. But he realized that he couldn't lift him. And there was no way he was going to be able to lift the body to take it somewhere and dump it. So then he thought, I'll have to cut the body in half. He knew that Morris Black had lots of tools and other things in his apartment. Durst said he did go to a hardware store 
and bought garbage bags to put the body parts in. He took the body parts to the Galveston Bay, which is the only way he could transport them, you know, pick them up and put them in his car, took them to the bay and dumped the bags in into the bay. He claims that he had drank a fifth of Jack Daniels before cutting up the body to give himself courage to do it. He had also smoked some marijuana. So he was high, he was drunk when he was doing this. Now the prosecution asks him some specific questions about this crime. The prosecutor asks, you were drunk when you were cutting him up? Durst then answers, I hope so, yes, sir. Durst often made the jury giggle with his answers. He was kind of a strange little man in the first place, and it appeared that the jurors were responding to these little quips he was making that came across as as kind of funny. But the prosecutor then followed up that question saying, okay, if he was wasted on alcohol and pot, How had he done such a meticulous job of dismembering the body? The medical examiner testified that these were very precise cuts made to the body. It was not a hack job. It looked like somebody who knew what he was doing. There are some pretty graphic details about how the body was dismembered, which I will not go into. To be honest, when I was researching this, nothing really tends to bother me. As far as details of a crime, I've been reading and researching true crime since I was, you know, a teen. So there's almost nothing that can really shock me. I mean, does it horrify me? Yes. Does it shock me? No. But when I was reading some of the details, because I had several sources, books and articles and court records about this case, uh, it really kind of made me a little nauseous. And I was very surprised by that because it is very detailed. And usually you do not get that level of detail, especially when you're talking about something like a dismemberment. They're always gruesome and they're always shocking, horrifying that one human being can do this to another human being. But the actual act itself, I can kind of dissociate myself from when I'm reading about this one because it was so precise, the way that it was methodical and how it was done was a bit nauseating. I, I will admit. So that's why I'm not going to go into detail here because it was brought into the trial and it was something that the prosecution was trying to show that this was done deliberately. So this was the question he asked. How had he done such a meticulous job of dismembering this body? Which he doesn't really have a, an answer for. Uh, something else that the medical examiner testified to for the prosecution was other injuries found on Morris Black's body. Uh, marks on both sides of Morris Black's uh, torso, also marks and bruising to his shoulders, the middle of his back, his arms, and the top of his shoulders. And this would have come from multiple blows, according to the medical examiner. He said these bruises were fresh and dark purple and were consistent with Black having been beaten around the head and neck while he was still alive and not consistent with just falling once after he had been shot. Durst's answer to this was that these injuries had to have been as a result of when they scuffled over the gun. But like he said, it was a second. Basically, he said he grabbed for it. They tripped. He didn't talk about a prolonged fight over the gun when he first testified. Here were some other questions that the prosecution brought in. Durst had given a detailed description of how the gun had gone off, precisely how they had fallen, how he had grabbed the gun. It was very detailed. But when he was asked by the prosecutor about the details of the dismemberment, he answered that he could not remember. So that, he pointed out, was an inconsistency, that he had memory or he didn't have memory of what had happened. Also, the prosecution pointed out that no witnesses said that Black was prone with fits of rage. They said he was 
cranky. He liked to yell. He liked to complain. But nobody said that he had attacked anybody or anything like that. Basically, the reports were that he was just a, quote, cranky old man. Durst tried to portray Morris Black as his very good friend, his best friend, in fact, that he had in Galveston. And they spent all kinds of time together and they did all these things together. But the defense did not provide any witnesses and the prosecutor could not find any witnesses who said they had seen Durst and Black palling around at all. Just those arguments that they had in the apartment building, but not being together or being friends. Durst was portrayed by his defense attorneys as a disengaged loner all his life. So trying to show that he was this quirky individual that had these psychological issues and couldn't really connect with people and, you know, that kind of thing. But the prosecutor brought witnesses on who said that Robert Durst was popular in high school. He had lots of friends as an adult. He was involved in lots of school activities and clubs and things when he was in school, when he was in college. He had an active social life in New York, friends and people that he socialized with. So it didn't jibe again. People who knew Robert Durst said that he was quirky, but they also called him a genius who could be very charming and generous. There was also no reports by anyone uh, in the neighborhood of Durst trying frantically to summon help like he had claimed. They also brought in witnesses to testify that they heard two gunshots that night, not just one. He had to explain this as well because he said, you know, the gun went off once, boom, was done. But why was there reports of two gunshots heard? Durst then explained this by saying that, yes, there was two, but the first gunshot was Morris Black shooting at the eviction notice that he had tacked onto his apartment wall. Remember, the landlord was evicting him. But the eviction notice was found in Morris Black's apartment and there was no bullet holes in it. So that was a discrepancy. And the other thing too, if he was so frantic and so out of it on pot and alcohol, the prosecution asked, how had he done such a thorough cleanup after the fact? How was it possible that not even Durst's own fingerprints were found in his apartment if he was so traumatized? How was he able to do that? The prosecutor would say that Durst made sure to clean all of his own fingerprints from everywhere because he planned to disappear after this and so that nobody would ever know that Robert Durst had been there. He would just be back in the wind and be free and clear. The other things that Robert Durst claimed while he was on the stand was that he would put on women's clothing and a wig when he would leave the apartment because he was disguised as a woman. But he would ditch the wig and change the clothes when he was out of, the, out of sight of his landlord and the neighbors. He said the reason he faked also being mute, not just being a woman, was because he, quote, had a distinctive voice that people would recognize. Um, in Texas, I don't know, but that's what he said. He also claimed that he'd use marijuana daily since he was in college, which does appear to be true. And he also said that marijuana and alcohol had affected him his whole life. It had affected most of the jobs that he had and was one of the reasons why he was not employed by the Durst organization. Okay, so all of this boils down to he admits that he kills this guy, supposedly in self-defense, but then he also admits to this completely gruesome part of the crime, which is dismembering the body. And again, the prosecution thought it was a slam dunk case. But his multi-million dollar defense did their job because the verdict that came back on November 11, 2003, after five days and 26 hours of deliberation, was that Durst was found not guilty of murder. The jurors found unanimously that he had killed Morris Black in self-defense after he found him trespassing in his apartment and because he was afraid of him. When the verdict was read, 
Durst, who had most of the time stayed pretty stone-faced, had a very dramatic physical reaction. He closed his eyes, lifted his head to the ceiling, and let out an audible gasp. His eyes teared up, and he turned and uh, embraced his attorneys. He was now free to go. Well, not exactly. I'll get to that in a second. But let's, let's ask this question. Why and how was he acquitted? So jurors, of course, were asked. And what they said was that it comes down to reasonable doubt. They said the prosecution could not prove how Black had died. The reason they couldn't prove how Black had died, because Robert Durst said that he had been shot in the head, the head was never found. I mean, is that convenient for Robert Durst's defense? Very. So that could have been something that they could have weighed and said, well, wait a minute. You know, he's saying he was shot in the head and it was an accident, and yet we can't find the head. Everything else was found but not the head. Doesn't that maybe think the reason why the head was maybe dumped in a different place or what? But no, they didn't think of it that way. They just said they followed the instructions given to them and the the prosecutor could not prove how Black had died. Now, whether they considered all the other injuries, it seems like they did not. Or maybe they didn't thought, well, maybe there was more of, of a fight. So maybe Robert Durst was fighting for his life. One juror said about the defendant that she could, quote, understand his panic and understand his life, which is quite a statement if you think about it. You could understand a guy who comes from a billionaire family, flees the state, hides, dressed as a woman, pretending to be mute, accidentally or not, kills his neighbor, and then dismembers a body. You could relate to this guy. The jurors were convinced by the defense, but they said they knew that Robert Durst was a liar. They said they actually dismissed most of his testimony because they knew he was a liar. But one juror said they, quote, took the evidence presented and went on the facts. Based on the evidence, we could not convict him. Later on, Dick DeGaron, his lead defense attorney, would also be interviewed about this case. He said that the work cut out for him as Robert Durst's defense attorney was to convince the jury that a person has the right to protect himself from apparent danger, whether that danger is real or not. Now, this is something that we have heard used as a defense in things like police shootings of unarmed people or people that were not a threat to an officer. If he believes they're a threat, then he can defend himself even using deadly force is the way that that argument goes. The defense's strategy was also the reason that Durst fled New York and disguised himself as a woman because he thought he wouldn't get a fair trial. And Pirro was doing everything to convict their client in New York on no evidence, is what they said. The other strategy that they used that worked very well with the jury was to remind the jury to focus on Black's murder, not his dismemberment. They explained to the jury that their duty was to separate the facts and only judge whether the prosecution could prove that Robert Durst killed Morris Black deliberately. And of course they could not because they didn't have the head. The only question the jury was told to consider was did the gun go off on purpose or an accident? And of course, that's toss a coin, right? It could be either. But the jury said since the head was missing, there was no way to know. There was no way to answer that question, so they had to acquit. The other thing the defense did, which of course we know happens a lot, is that you assassinate the character of the victim. The defense portrayed Morris Black as a violent and dangerous man. They brought up the fact that he had murdered a soldier in Japan years ago. And of course, they're talking about during wartime, how that's relevant to this, I think, is is kind of a stretch. They also said that Morris Black threatened many people in town. 
But there was no testimony that he had attacked anybody physically or done anything violent, maybe with words, but never physically. They also portrayed him as Durst's best friend. He said Black was a grumpy old man, but Durst understood him, and they got along. They watched TV together. They even went target shooting together. And as evidence of this, they said he even gave Black a key to his apartment. Well, okay, so if he was so afraid of Mars Black, why would he give him a key? But again, they were able to make their arguments more convincing to the jury than the prosecution did, apparently. They also pointed out that Morris Black was erratic, that he had once fired the gun at an eviction notice tacked on the wall. Well, that was according to Robert Durst. And they also explained that Durst had taken the keys away because he was starting to fear Morris Black, but that Black had made a copy and he didn't know that. At least that's his claim. Robert Durst definitely got away with murder. Now, whether deliberate or not, this is where later on more information comes out. But of course, he's already acquitted. So, you know, no double jeopardy. One of the things that I found as I was doing this research was that it appeared that the investigators and prosecutors believed it was going to be a slam dunk case because of the details of this case and how the body was dismembered and all of that part of it. They didn't go a lot further. The other thing, too, you got to remember, they had a mountain of evidence that tied Durst to this killing, a mountain of it. So they probably figured, okay, we've got everything we need. We have more than we need. To me, it recalls the O.J. Simpson trial. And whatever you think about the O.J. Simpson trial and the verdict, uh, we're not going to debate that here. We'll do that at some other time. But there was a ton of evidence brought into that trial as well. And I believe the prosecutors sometimes get a little cocky about that and then don't go a lot further because they figure, we've got all of this. We have all of this. We don't need anything else. But I think you always need to think about what could they counter that evidence with? And, and how do we counter what they bring in? So I think you just have to keep going down that road. Now, according to this writer for GQ named Robert Draper, he traveled to Galveston after the trial had wrapped up because everybody was very curious about how did he get acquitted for this? So he traveled to Galveston and he talked to neighbors, community members, and talked to anybody who had witnessed either... Robert Durst, alias Dorothy Siner, which, oh, I don't know if I said this, but the name he used, Dorothy Siner, was actually the name of a high school classmate of Robert Durst. So he went back decades and pulled this name out of a hat of somebody that he knew in high school and used her name um, as his alias. One of the people he talked to was a bus driver who went by the nickname Big Daddy, which I thought was really cute. Um, His real name was Claudus Edmund. He drove the number six bus through Galveston, and that was his daily route. And he said Morse Black and Robert Durst, these two elderly men or older men, were often frequent passengers. He portrayed Morse Black as a skinny old man. He said Black rode on his route at least three times per week. He remembered Black as a man with a Boston accent. And he said Black was always yelling and complaining. And once Big Daddy had to threaten to banish him from the bus because he was so problematic. Those who knew Black or knew of him, you know, had seen him around, had witnessed his behavior, his cranky old man routine. They said they weren't surprised that he'd been found murdered. One person said, quote, he provoked people. He'd push you to where you'd want to kill him. And another person said what it was, was he was an asshole. He probably treated his neighbor that way and he got fed up, end quote. Here's another thing that Robert Draper, the writer, discovered. 
that Morris Black, this man who walked around looking like, you know, he was in threadbare clothes, he had no money, he's living in this cheap apartment, there's almost nothing in it, that Black left behind an estate worth almost $140,000. The house that he had purchased in South Boston in 1980 for $6,500 was sold by him seven years later for $137,800. At that point, he retired. He was only 58. But he had enough money, so he retired and he moved south. He bounced around different places, Florida, New Orleans, and then ended up in uh, Galveston. When he arrived in Galveston in 1998, he actually did not expect to live long. He had a heart condition. And this is one of the things witnesses did say, that sometimes they'd see him very winded and out of breath and holding his chest the last months of his life. When they would try to help him, he would basically, you know, tell everybody to leave him alone. Morris Black had written to his sister and a sister-in-law, his ex-wife's sister, I guess, that if he died, that the two of them were beneficiaries of his life savings, which they didn't think much about because they didn't think he had much life savings. Okay, well, whatever. Then they find out he's got like $140,000 and several bank accounts in another state. As far as Robert Durst, the bus driver said that he said very little, but during the day, he would get on the bus, dressed flax and a, a shirt, but in the evening... The same man he identified as Robert Durst often boarded the bus dressed to the nines. He would wear an auburn wig, full face of makeup, and earrings. He would be wearing a dress, but not like a, you know, a house dress or, or a frumpy dress like he would wear as Dorothy Signer, but he'd be wearing like a gown, like he was going nightclubbing. He said he'd get on the bus, he would take off his tennis shoes and take a pair of heels out of a bag and put those on before getting off the bus. He had once told Big Daddy that he performed at gay clubs in drag. That's why he was dressed that way. This, again, according to this bus driver. The bus driver also said that he never saw Durst and Black together. He saw them both on the bus, but never together. But other things that Draper found that were not previously reported was that while he was still renting the Avenue K apartment, Robert Durst checked into a Galveston resort under his own name. And this was on Sunday, September 23rd, the weekend before Morris Black's body was found in the bay, and supposedly a day or so after he was killed. Draper also found a witness who said that they heard Durst and Black in a heated argument that weekend, sometime that weekend. Remember, he checks into this Galveston hotel Sunday, September 23rd. Why? When he already had this apartment, but then, you know, there's a report of this fight, so they said, well, what, did he leave to get away from Morris Black or did he leave for some other reason? We, this is all speculation. They know that Durst was still at the hotel on Monday the 24th because he made some phone calls from his hotel room. He was also seen at the hotel throughout that week, specifically in room 1515 at the San Luis Resort in Galveston. During that week, he was also in frequent contact with Deborah Lee Sheraton, which I told you he had secretly married earlier that year. Investigators also discovered that he had bought the bone saw that same week from the local hardware store. Now, this is the part where you kind of have to pull things apart. And this is where the rabbit hole I went down. Like, when did he buy the bone saw? Was it before, you know, he admits that he killed Morris? Was it after, like he said? So what we do know is that on Friday, September 28th, that he went to the hardware store and purchased a drop cloth and trash bags similar to those found in the bay. This was on Friday. But then we also know on Friday, he returns to the hotel. He has a haircut that night and eats dinner from room service on Friday night. Okay, so 
when did Morris Black die? Was it Friday night? Was it Saturday? But we know that he was in the hotel Friday evening and, and late because he made a late night call to the bar from his hotel room. This all happened two days before Black's body was found in the bay. But on Saturday the 29th, so the next day, there are no calls placed from Durst's hotel room, nor does he order any food to his room. So it's just basically like nothing happens that day. That's blank. And remember, so that's Saturday the 29th. The body is then found the afternoon of Sunday the 30th. And on Monday, October 1st, the next day in the morning, Robert Durst checks out of the hotel at 7.47 a.m. One of the things investigators kind of pieced together was the timeline. So they said it would have taken him several hours if he really did this alone, would have taken him several hours to dismember the body, clean both apartments, transport the body, and dump it into the bay. He would have had to do that part at night because, of course, you know, who's everybody's going to see him dumping body parts, you know, during the day in the bay. So did he have time if he killed Black on Friday, like he said, but then returned to the hotel that night where he was until late that night? And then, like I said, no activity on Saturday, but that was during the day. So was Saturday the day that he had time to clean everything up and dump the body? I would be Saturday evening, sometime late at night, something like that. So they were trying to figure that out. So right after that, we know that he left. Okay, so this is the part that was really interesting to me. He then leaves after he cleans the apartments, dumps the body parts, all of this stuff. He drives 300 miles to New Orleans, which he's been to several times, but not recently. He drove 300 miles to New Orleans and he drops off a comforter at a dry cleaner's that had a blood stain on it. Okay. Why? <laughs> Why? Why not dump that somewhere else? Why not burn it? Why have it cleaned? Now, one theory is because he's cheap and he's not going to throw away a perfectly good comforter that just has a blood stain on it, which to me sounds ridiculous, but who knows? This was a head. I was like, what the heck? Because then he drives back to Galveston and checks into the Galveston Holiday Inn Express under the name Jim Terse, which was another name he pulled out of a hat. And this was the receipt that they found on him when he was arrested. Okay, why do that? Here's the investigator Cody Gonzalez's theory. And I kind of think there may be something to this. His theory is that he knew what he was doing, that he wasn't going to leave the head behind that had the evidence, which Cody Gonzalez and other people believe that he had shot Morris Black in the back of the head the way that Susan Berman had been shot in the back of the head, like an execution style. Now, if they had found the head and, and seen that it was shot in the back of the head, game over right? Because this is not self-defense. So he didn't put the head in the bay with the other body parts. Maybe this was last minute. He wraps it in the comforter, which causes the blood stain. He drives 300 miles to New Orleans. Somewhere along the way, he drops the head in the bayou that's filled with alligators. So head gone, right? Never to be found. Now, why you wouldn't do that with the other body parts, I don't know. But anyway, he's a little off, I'm telling you. So there's something there. The whole head in the bayou, I, I don't know. It makes sense to me. We're at the end here. So after he's acquitted for Morris Black's murder, Robert Durst still had to answer for jumping bond, evidence tampering, transporting a gun across state lines. To this, he pled guilty. He served five and a half months in jail on the gun charge. He was sentenced to parole afterwards. 
which he later violated and then served more time in jail. In 2006, Durst settled a lawsuit against the Durst Family Trusts and received $65 million. So this guy, he falls ass backwards into money, as we used to say. So yeah, he's got plenty of money for anything that may come up. And there's going to be a few things that come up. So in 2010, the movie All Good Things, like I told you at the beginning of the episode, was released. That's when he got in touch with Andrew Jarecki, the director, and agreed to help him put together this documentary about his life called The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst. February 8th of 2015, The Jinx premieres. And like I mentioned at the beginning, it became this this sensation because, and I'm assuming most of you saw The Jinx, but I'm trying not to give things away if you haven't because you really need to see it. I believe it's one of the most interesting, well-done, intriguing true crime documentaries, you know, of the last decade. You know, honestly, it's one of those things everybody was talking about at the time. People who just watch it now still talk about it. So, okay, during the filming of this movie, though, Susan Berman, stepson, she had been married briefly, like I said. She had a stepson named Sareb Kaufman. He's also on The Jinx. He gives the filmmakers a handwritten letter that he found among his stepmom Susan's things. And this letter was to Susan from Robert Durst. He shows them this envelope that's handwritten. We know that this was sent by Robert Durst. It's got his name on it. That matches the letter that was sent to the Beverly Hills police when Susan Berman was murdered. The cadaver letter. Remember that? And the reason it matched because it was spelled out in block letterings and also... It was addressed to an address in Beverly Hills, and Beverly was misspelled the same way twice on both of them. Okay, this is something that the directors of the Jinx brought in and questioned Robert Durst about in the documentary. So I won't give the rest away in case you haven't watched it. If you have, you know how this all unfolded. But I'll just go ahead and say this. This film that Robert Durst sought out to have made about his life, to tell his side of the story, was the thing that resulted in the Los Angeles Police Department reopening the investigation into Susan Berman's murder, which is what today, actually right now when I'm recording, is August 5th, 2021. Today, Robert Durst was to be put on the stand in the trial of the murder of Susan Berman that he is having to answer for. So comes full circle. So let's let's go back to how he gets to trial. And this is just the very last wrap up of this. March 14th, 2015, Durst is arrested in New Orleans. He is picked up that night right before the final episode of The Jinx airs because they believe as soon as that airs and he sees what they got on film, which again, I won't tell you because I don't want to spoil it, that he's going to run. So, and remember, he's got 65 million smackaroonies, so he can go wherever he wants. He can go to the moon if he wants to. Um, (laughs) So they pick him up that night, and he is charged with the murder of Susan Berman. Again, when he is arrested, he is arrested with a ton of incriminating evidence. A gun, more than $400,000 now in cash, a fake ID, and a latex mask. This was in uh, March 14th, 2015. In 2016, he's now extradited back to California where a judge says that there is enough evidence to try him for Susan Berman's murder. He does get bail again, but this is crazy. The bail is set at $1 billion. I feel like Dr. Evil. $1 billion. (laughs) So he ain't going nowhere. So he's been in jail since this time, since 2016. Robert Durst is now 78 years old as he is standing trial for this murder in Los Angeles. 
He has been estranged from his family for about 25 years when he disappeared and what all this was going on. They don't really talk about him. They didn't bring him up or give comments to the press at that time. His brother Douglas did say that he feared for his life after Robert was acquitted in Black's murder. Robert Durst was seen trespassing on the family's properties in 2012 and 2013. He was actually brought into court for that in 2014, but found not guilty. But his brother Douglas had agreed now to testify at Durst's trial in the murder of Susan Berman. And his brother Tom was also cooperating with investigators. Uh, His brother Douglas says, quote, Bob has always been a burden to the family. It's really sad, but... (laughs) You know, you can't blame him for saying this. Kathy Durst is still missing, and her disappearance remains unsolved. Durst continues to deny any involvement in her disappearance. So bringing up to today, this was as of six hours ago when I'm recording this. He was expected to be put on the stand today. Now it looks like it has been postponed. Uh, His testimony, anyway, has been postponed until Monday. Actually, You'll be listening to this episode the day that he is on the stand, if that does happen. So this is from CNN. The sensational murder trial of millionaire Robert Durst was abruptly adjourned on Thursday as Judge Mark Wyndham sent jurors home for a long weekend. Court is set to resume Monday at 11 a.m. Pacific time with continued cross-examination of memory expert Dr. Elizabeth Loftus. Durst himself could take the stand to testify on his own behalf as early as Monday afternoon. The judge told jurors he did not expect a trial, which has been in session since May, would continue much longer as he has admonished them to avoid any media coverage and refrain from discussing the proceedings. So the reason why this has been delayed so much, because the trial was set to begin on March 2nd, 2020, but because COVID delayed the proceedings, it finally resumed just May of this year, May uh, 2020. This is exciting for me because I never get to do like breaking news on Once Upon a Crime (laughs) for obvious reasons. It's like Once Upon a Crime, but this was Once Upon a Crime, but now it's been brought up to today because the trial is uh, finally being held on the Susan Berman murder, which, you know, like I said, makes that a little bit exciting to bring you some breaking news. This is what uh, you need to know about this trial. Durst has long denied killing Berman and his lawyer has said that he panicked and ran after finding her body. Guess who his lawyer is? He's smart again. He got Dick DeGarren a second time, the guy that got him off on the Morris Black murder. So DeGarren has said that Durst panicked and ran after finding her body. So now he's saying that he was there, but he did not kill her. He found her body and he panicked and he ran. So here's another one of these defenses. I panicked. He has pleaded not guilty. So now they can say that he did write the letter because, you know, he wrote the letter because he wanted somebody to find the body of his very good friend, I would imagine, and but he didn't want to be implicated in it, so this is the way he did it. Dude, use a typewriter, disguise your handwriting, learn to spell something, right? Also, lastly, Durst, like I said, is 78 years old today. He has been in very poor health for a while, or at least has claimed to be. There, there He does definitely have some health issues. How debilitating it is and how um, weak and frail he is, could be a matter for, you know, something they bring into court to make him seem more sympathetic, or perhaps it's true. Kind of the same thing that he did with the mental health claims in the first trial, right? To bring in sympathy. It says, anyway, Durst's health has deteriorated since then, and he looks and sounds frail in court. At 78, he is thin, bent over, and in a wheelchair, and speaks in a whispery voice. Durst has bladder cancer and has undergone multiple surgeries, including the insertion of a shunt in his head to relieve the pressure on his brain. That's something that 
they showed, you know, kind of way back when the trial was first supposed to start. So he's been living with this for a while. Again, he's expected to testify in his own defense, which a CNN article says, testifying in one's own defense is uncommon for murder defendants, but the tactic worked for Durst in a previous murder. Yes, it did. And then they talk about the Morris Black murder, which you just heard all about. It also says that Judge Wyndham could still delay the trial due to Durst's poor health. So that could be a, you know, 11th hour thing if it looks like it's going badly for him. Who knows? That could, the defense could say he can't be here to defend himself because, you know, he's in poor health. Bottom line is this guy's 78 years old in very ill health. I mean, if he has bladder cancer, he's got some major medical issues here. And so his health is probably pretty precarious. Bottom line is, if he did do all these things, which we know he at least did the Morris Black thing, and most people and most evidence tends to agree that he was involved in the disappearance of his wife, this guy has gotten away with murder. If this is all true, and even if it's not with Morris Black, he has gotten away with murder. And this is where this series came into be. Because when this happens, it's one of those things that as a law and order kind of society that we want to be, it's just one of those jarring things that we have to know this, that justice is not always served. So we're going to continue that theme through the rest of this month. And I'll be bringing you a couple of other really interesting cases. I hope you liked a little bit of the off the cuff discussion. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate everything, the the loyalty, listening to the podcast, being a longtime listeners. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. As always, I want to thank my assistant, Lorena Garcia, for helping me with the research, Aaron Goldberg for putting together most of our music and audio for the episodes, and Crystal Jernan for doing the copy editing when I get really lost and really cleaning up my words here and there. Hey, follow that trial. Come and discuss it with us, the Once Upon a Crime Facebook fan page. You guys have a wonderful week, and as always, be good to one another. Thank you.